I'm Jonah Senzel. And I'm Alexander Young. And I'm Jim Stormdancer, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Jonah, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? I'm Jonah. I am a musician. I write music for video games, probably most known as Pony Island, and I do a lot of other stuff, make my own games and stuff, and uh, art projects like this. So you can find uh, on my website, works.rip, R-I-P, there's a bunch of different stuff that I've made. It's a pretty good domain. I, I thought it was decent. It was super cheap. And if you use the funny, whatever that's called, the, the endings, top level domains. Yeah, TLD. Pretty, pretty good ones, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I'm Alexander Young. I teach math at the college level, which has been quite an experience <laughs> these last few months. Yeah, how is how is that? How's your school handling uh, oh, the global boy. pandemic? Or do you want to talk about that? I, I don't know how interesting it be. It's it's chaotic. I guess if you are if you're taking if you're in the university right now, and you're frustrated with how nobody knows anything and nobody knows what's going to happen. Trust me, they're not withholding information from you. They we are thinking about this as we go. We are trying to figure out what to do about literally everything. It's it's a mess, but um you know, some I'm glad I'm teaching math and not sculpture. I know some I know there's a sculpture <laughs> teacher at my school. I don't know what she's been doing. And uh yeah, I don't have I don't have anything to plug unless you happen to be one of my students and then you you already know what I've been working on. <laughs> like I've been developing tools for online grading and logic systems and stuff, but it's not not really something you can check out from the outside very well, at least not at the moment. <laughs> what if what if there's a, another math professor listening in that they want to they want to use your grading, your online grading system. Okay. If, if you are that person and you want to get into online homework grading, step one is to check out WebWork. Uh-huh. Step two is contact me if you have any questions or want some tips on how to write or design your own questions. That sounds awesome. That sounds yeah, extremely no, absolutely. useful. Absolutely. I would love to I would love to have a seminar on this. It's an interesting old legacy system and I basically spent a lot of this year learning Perl and then learning the weird kind of object-based Perl that they use for checking math answers. <laughs> oh yeah, Perl's a fun one because like every project that you use uses an entirely different subset of the language. It's a moon language. None of the names make any sense. <laughs> I feel uh, like Topic Lords might have a larger than normal podcast demographic of math teachers. I don't know why. I'm just imagining. Seems right. Yeah. Uh, are you two ready for some topics? Absolutely. Yes. Alexander, your first topic is TI-83 games, specifically TIE Fighter, Bobsled, and Indy 500. Yeah, I think I was inspired listening to a previous episode where I think you talked about that kind of gaming platform. And I don't know, it triggered a lot of memories because I got really into it back in high school. Um, it is a, at least at the time, at least as far as I knew, it was pretty much the easiest way to develop a very small game. Yeah, like if you wanted to wanted to make Game Boy games or NES games, Vitaly 83 was a pretty good simulacrum of that experience. It's the only thing I had access to anyway. You, you got, you know, it's in basic. There's a lot of limitations on what it can do. Oh, you mean like making making games in TI? I was thinking of like a Z80 assembly. No, no, no. I'm I'm talking the full on 
programming your TI-83. I mean, did either of you play Bobsled slash TIE Fighter slash Indy 500 on your TI-83? Wait, is that a single game? It is. (laughs) Well, okay, that's the other interesting thing. You can distribute games. This was like before widespread internet or before like you could really, you know, this is when Napster was a new thing. Audio port. Yeah, you you could transfer data between TI-83s and, you know, you're in high school, all your friends have a TI-83 for their class. Um, some, some of you have ports and you can just swap games around and it would go through this evolution because it's clearly the same game. It, the premise is you're going through a narrowing tunnel and if you hit the wall, you die, but it would be re at some point someone would rename this game it was a very low-tech reskinning like I see. oh yeah now you're racing and this is your race car or let's include a line from cool runnings and now it's bobsled and we changed the, the <laughs> character that represents your character to a, an h and now it's a tie fighter yeah it was a it was in a zero with two parens on either side <laughs> okay all right this is interesting because i think also like this is a very this is like a generational connecting thing because I think I went to high school way after probably either of you. And for some reason, like, I guess since the TID3 was invented, they've just never stopped using it to teach math. Because <laughs> yeah. I use I a TI-84, I guess. And even then, like, by the, it, by the time I was going to high school, you could buy, like, a TI-Inspire, which is basically a computer, like... It has like a color screen and like all this fancy plotting for the same price. But like the curriculum is all entirely based on TI-84. So even like we would download, I think it was like a big thing was getting like Pokemon Red. Someone has like remade the entirety of Pokemon Red somewhere on uh, <laughs> TI-84. Yeah, the the ti calculators are, are ridiculous fossil in that like they, they found this way to keep creating hardware that hasn't changed in like 25 years but it's still relevant basically because they have a monopoly on like yes this is one of the calculators the sat allows you to use yeah that's exactly it i mean the ti inspire is kind of a very small point of contention with one of my colleagues in the department because he's very pro ti inspire he requires it for his classes and he's very pro you know, we'll teach you math, but also here's some programs you can use to cut some of the work out on, on your exam. And he's very much on the, you know, make full use of tech in class. And I'm very much more on the, you know, the, the real, the real learning process is figuring is, you know, getting your hands dirty and figuring out how the, the stuff clicks yourself without, you know, running a program to do it for you. Yeah. It is a bit funny this moment where it's like uh, the act of like cheating by using programs on your calculator and then I feel like there's a moment where you enter the quote unquote like real world and it's like oh this is this is just how everybody gets work done. But yeah, it's like this oh, yeah. is the oh, yeah. <laughs> the name of the game. I mean, I'm I'm teaching integral calculus this fall and I'm giving I'm doing some soul searching because to be honest the amount of work that goes into learning the methods versus the 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 total power of Wolfram Alpha to do pretty much any integral, it's not even a context contest. It's 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 almost <laughs> not 
worth <laughs> spending the time and effort, you know, at least at the sophomore level to learn how to do trigonometric substitution. Like I had a few integrals a set, uh, yesterday and I'm just like, I'm not doing this on my own. <laughs> yeah. What if there's like a hole in your hot air balloon and you need to know how much time before you hit the ground <laughs> and the internet is down? That's always the classic like, uh, I, it's funny because I feel like there are good arguments maybe somewhere for not using calculators but like the classic one from school that I still remember is like, well, you're not always going to have your cell phone <laughs> with you, which is just like, what are you talking <laughs> yeah. about? Like, what planet is this? Well, I yeah. mean, the, the flip side, I mean, the, the big reason why we're, one big reason why we're still using TI-83 is because I can't be bothered to research calculator models and <laughs> determine which ones are too much of an advantage. And everybody has a TI-83 already. So, like, why not? Yeah. I mean, the other end is I once had a, I once was tutoring someone who was taking a stats course and pretty much all her homework assignments were go to this website and do this particular thing. And it's like, what are you even learning here? Like, there's no joy in any of this. What happens if the website goes down? What happens if you don't have a, you know, TI Inspire goes obsolete and you don't know how to do anything anymore? Yeah. Mm. Anyway, I, I thought that just the games in particular was a, just a peculiar little slice of early game dev in a way that that just worked i was I, i've had friends that commissioned me to like i don't have bowling on my calculator can you write it for me and i'm like yeah i could write something like that <laughs> yeah uh, give me my lunch money <laughs> yeah i'm imagining in like the year 4500 they'll still be using ti84 but it'll be like one of those things where it's like Nobody knows exactly why we use this weird old calculator. And nobody knows how the factories work either. <laughs> yeah. They just turn these things out, so we do math with it. <laughs> I mean, nobody can read the keywords either. It'll be like studying Latin. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, math is the universal language. Uh, you guys ready for another topic? Yeah. Yes. So, my topic is uh, the Jazz Fusion Act that inspired all video game music. Uh, so, I'm talking about T-square, but that's really standing in for the entire Japanese jazz fusion genre that swept the nation, the, by, by which I mean the nation of Japan in the, the late 70s and 80s. <laughs> And so this was like a, a a jazz fusion act, which is like a a nothing of a genre in the United States, but filled stadiums apparently in Japan in the eighties, and was hugely influential on Japanese arcade and console game music, in in, in, su in such a way that the American listeners who heard the the resulting music, the, the game music, uh, thought it was just wholly of itself because they had no context for what it was referencing. Yeah, there, I mean, I saw uh, Kirby's Dream Band last year uh, yeah they came up and because i you know i know i know andre beller and uh you know they're based in san diego and um it was a lot of fun to see that show but watching that video they could have played one of these songs and i would not have noticed the difference <laughs> right yeah i think there's a really fascinating sort of 
interchange exchange between jazz and video game music over the years, like back and forth and left and right and all over the place where like it's they're very weirdly linked even there's a there's a really good video of this um jazz student who there's a riff in i think it's mario kart 8 like going to jumping forward to modern stuff yeah and it's this like crazy saxophone riff that uh sounds like it's from it's it, it basically the the piece from mario kart is just like a contemporary crazy jazz thing and he learns this one absolutely wild saxophone riff and it's just like the video is like him playing it a bunch and then he plays it in like an actual bandstand concert at some big hall Uh over in a solo over like chick korea spain and you could it just zooms in on his friend who's like laughing but i do think that there's like this really historied kind of uh play between jazz and game music that like They've always had some dialogue. Yeah, that makes sense to me. When did this? When was this music popular? I think you said the eighties. Yeah, like T Square, which by the way stands for the Square, <laughs> uh, was um, was popular in like the late seventies and through the through the early nineties, I think. And they're still playing now, but they're not. It's not their heyday anymore. Western music doing at this time? Like we we were listening to some darker stuff. It seems. <laughs> well, that Western music went through a whole like early late seventies. The big thing was disco, uh, and then we got to like uh, synth poppy type rock genre. Like uh, uh, I'm blanking on any any artist names, but like just listen to the Vice City soundtrack. <laughs> you might be yeah, blanking because think- half those bands had one hit. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think the T-square thing also, like, to me, the thing that's that's super um, evocative is also the the sounds. Like, even though the, the composition and stuff and the melodies are also very much, like, a gamey, but the, the, that weird, like, middle era of synths, I don't think that those are regular, like, classic synths. They don't sound like a subtractive synth to you? Uh, I mean, it could be, but I feel like with that weird, we were talking before about this weird, uh, the, what is it called? The saxophone thing? Yeah, the the front man of, uh, or there, there's more than one, actually. Sometimes they have two people pl- up front. They're playing um, wind controllers, EWIs, which is basically like a, a MIDI saxophone. Yeah, and I think that's the era where you have like, where like DX7. Yeah, FM synthesizer. Yeah, from from Yamaha. But yeah, I don't know. To me, it sounds like like something FM or or one of those strange sound font things where I'm not exactly sure how those work. But it's like ten thousand synths that are all controlled by MIDI and stuff. Yeah, like I'm I'm sure these guys were huge synth dorks and were using whatever was the latest thing at the time. When and like synthesizers went through a you know a, a long series of evolutions from from 1980 to 1990. So I would expect that like they did a bunch of different interesting stuff over that whole period right right yeah I'm, I'm listening to this and i'm trying to imagine early video games like sonic the hedgehog or what have you with a more established western genre in the background playing of music and i'm, I'm trying to try to figure trying to imagine how different that would be because this is it sounds very like positive and energetic
it goes well. It seems to go well behind, you know, just running around in circles. Like there's no the vocals distracting. It's just, uh, you know, have fun exploring, go nuts, jump on things. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, you can really jump into like any part in this is like a three hour long video and every single one of them really it's uncanny how much it's just like oh yep that's like a water level or a green grass from like sonic or something it sounds so so yeah and i guess this is like a sister topic too i discussed a few episodes ago a while ago now i guess the origin of the the green pipe from super mario brothers oh yeah and how that originated as like uh the they they actually just left stacks of concrete pipes in vacant lots in Japan during World War II and kids played in them and that was like the the inspiration for the pipes um and when it came over to the United States it just became like this just this thing that was all its own all of these things originated with Super Mario Brothers and it really i think helped um the cachet i i do think like those games benefited a lot from their American audience's ignorance of their inspirations. It was just like, oh, a weird pipe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it just it just feels so much more original and mysterious as a result. That's interesting. I remember hearing um, that episode, I think. I don't know. Did you guys also talk about uh, like adventure playgrounds? I don't think so. It, there's like this movement. I, I think it was in the UK. It might have been in the US. I, I can't remember. But it's like there was this whole movement in... I think it was also post-World War II, might have been more like the 70s in this kind of like hippie, like more experimental era. But they would have these playgrounds that were like, they had like nails and construction bits and every, they were like by traditional standards, just extremely dangerous. But um, I guess apparently the, the the person who was kind of front running and creating them, the idea was to introduce like the idea of real risk into play and how that like prepared kids. I mean, the thing is that people, they didn't really get hurt so much. Like it was kind of fine. Like that was the crazy part is that like everyone would be like freaking out initially about like there's nails and stuff and it's like kids are okay. I don't know. Like somehow they'll. Uh, yeah. yeah. Like, like kids, kids are resilient and all the, the safety procedures that we have are pushing back against extremely like against dangers that have an extremely low probability but also it is not at all clear to me that being around rusty nails benefits kids in any way <laughs> you can just pretend the floor is lava you don't need to actually make it lava <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but but the i do love the idea just just the two word idea of adventure playgrounds I don't know. In, in in my distant playground experience, like the the adventure is whatever ridiculous lore the kids made up about, you know, one fort versus another or, you know, you can't step on those tiles or, um, you know, whoever gets – whoever can make the most dangerous monkey bars course wins or, you know. <laughs> kids can be very creative already. We don't need to give them rusty nails. Fair enough. Yeah, I guess I also have like – maybe I have an inflated – uh, there's like one thing I remember one time seeing like a four-year-old on this super, super high rock somewhere. I think this was in Israel. And like we, we were, there was just like a whole group of us and we saw this four-year-old fall from like this crazy height and like tumble all over. It was like insane. 
And I think we all felt seeing this like, oh no, like this was horrible. And he just like got up and was totally fine. So, I think since that moment, I've been like, oh, kids are basically indestructible. And maybe that's uh, misguided. This is, no, this is, um, this is largely true in my experience too. <laughs> even, even up through your teens, you can t- really take a beating and be fine. Yeah, I guess there's like an evolutionary something where you just have like rubber bones or something until you're yeah well 20. The, in the case of the four-year-old the, it's a huge advantage that children don't weigh very much that's a good point yeah i'm, I'm thinking about all the i'm thinking about the stuff i did and just like that was that was just ignorance on my part i wasn't really thinking about how jumping this far over this many steps could have possibly really hurt <laughs> yeah are you ready for another topic yep yep uh, Jonah, your topic is Wikipedia in different languages has different opinions on stuff. Yes. So, I'm currently living um, in Greece, in Athens, and one of the ever-present things is the constant argument over who invented what between Greeks and uh, Turkish people. Uh-huh. And I, I saw that th- there was an argument between two people about this dance and they were like, oh, no, this is Greek. And the, the other person was like, this is Turkish. And they were kind of arguing about it back and forth. And they both went to look it up on Wikipedia. And on, <laughs> on the Greek Wikipedia, it says it was invented by Greeks. And on Turkish Wikipedia, it says it was invented by people from Turkey. And yeah. then they had to like... So, they the tiebreaker was to see from English Wikipedia. And I, I, I never thought about how like just how different... Wikipedia is not like one static thing. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, whoever wanted to edit each page in each language could do it sort of how they wanted to. Right. You know, if if the sources that you look up a book in a Greek library and it says that this thing was invented in Greece, of course, your Wikipedia article is going to cite this book and say it was invented in Greece. If if there are scholars from different uh, countries that disagree, then of course, the Wikipedia uh, articles originating in those countries would also disagree. Like I bet, I bet the Korean page for fan death is extremely serious. Actually, <laughs> I was going to bring that up because I forget what page it was. It was folk illnesses or some psychosomatic illnesses, some some kind of category of that. Yeah, and the English page will have fan death because we don't consider it to be real. And then you go to the Korean page and. They have anorexia as an example of one of these. Oh, interesting. That's super crazy. That's fascinating. It's a weird mirror to put on yourself. It's like, is that our fan death? I mean, it's a a serious thing. Like, No, as Americans, we're definitely right about everything. But, you know, it's the context of, wait, wait a minute. Is this, is, is this in some way our fan death? Is this something that other people will just, you know, look down on us for believing in? Yeah. Right. And I think it's super easy also to get into that mindset of like, oh, well, obviously this is a thing that we know for sure. And this is a thing that's definitely not true. And it's like weird. I guess fan death is an odd one because... You would think, like, hasn't somebody made a video that's like, you know, 48 hours of me sitting in a room with no windows with like 10 fans on and just like, (laughs) I'm fine. Like, you'd think that this would be kind of somewhat debunkable. I don't know if there's an extra element to it there that I'm not aware of. They would probably think you're a ghost. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole phylum of 
little things that you're not supposed to do according to your parents, like read when it's dark because it'll ruin your eyes. And I think that the idea is that you don't need confirmation to be worried about it. <laughs> just <laughs> right, don't read right, in the dark right. or just don't leave your fan on. How hard is that? <laughs> right. Well, and the other thing is that um, presenting people with evidence that their beliefs are wrong doesn't actually convince them. Yeah, it's interesting. I see, I think in home remedies, I see this a lot like culturally, oh, what do you do if you have a cold? And it's like, I feel like some places you go, you're supposed to like put hot stuff, some places cold stuff, some places X and Y. I used to get a lot of like nosebleeds as a kid and you get just like every single person has like this secret solution to like stop a nose from bleeding and they're all totally different. And I find many of them would be like medical professionals that are like, no, 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 that's ridiculous. Don't do that. Do this. And it's like from another nurse, from a, a different nurse that's like telling them which one is, is right and wrong. Did wow. you come up, like, did you try all of them and end up with a bunch of cool hobbies? Yeah, I was going to describe some of them. Some of them are kind of gross. The the most interesting one that that worked for a while was like, you roll up a very small piece of like napkin or something and you put it under your upper lip so there's like pressure there and then you squeeze really hard the finger of the opposite nostril that's bleeding and like just saying it now i'm i'm thinking like maybe this was complete like something for me to occupy myself yeah or like something totally psychosomatic but i think that was told to me by like some sort of medical person i don't know like not just like a nurse walking somewhere not like yeah i was just hoping one of them is like yeah you should dip your french fries in your chocolate shake <laughs> and you realize oh well that didn't help my nosebleed but it is delicious it is yeah it is amazing yeah i don't know it's it's kind of jarring to see uh wikipedia disagreeing with itself when it's it has this implicit reputation as something neutral yeah i i do think that like people like in the large people still kind of don't realize that the wiki part of it means that anybody can edit it Right. It is interesting too though that I feel like it's one of it's still it's oddly reliable, even though it has a really bad reputation. I think these days it's kind of crazy how well it works, like even though it's it doesn't always work, but just the fact that something's so open source, uh it's kind of like one of those projects where you're like, Oh yeah, right. Yeah, I, I mean I will I will definitely read Wikipedia and believe things on it. It's surreal to me. If you had mentioned this idea five years before it happened, like no one would have believed it worked. And we all just have it as this pillar in our lives that we just completely take for granted. Like if Wikipedia disappeared, what would happen? <laughs> Bad <Right>. stuff. <laughs> it's kind of crazy to me that there hasn't been, yeah, like, because Wikipedia is, of course, always constantly kind of on borrowed time, I think, according to, you know, like you go on every once in a while and they're like, help. <laughs> Our servers are going to shut down. But I don't know. You'd think that like the government of Denmark or something would have uh, been one of these weird things where they give them a billion dollars every year or something to keep them running perpetually as a service to yeah. humanity. And you look at something like the Internet Archive, it really looks like it should be a, a government service. Like Totally, yeah. But it's just one rich dude funding it. And I think they do take donations too, but like it, it was started by um, just a guy who had startup money and uh, decided to do that with it. Yeah, the Internet Archive is even more like 
I find that that's the kind of thing you look at it and you start thinking about how like in some techno future it will be like yes we have would you like to look through these archived realities or something and it's like <laughs> yeah you can we have the year you know 2040 it's like yeah we have the uh, the entirety of existence from 2040 on this like whatever floppy disk or something oh yeah everybody's uh the webcam that they always have around their neck at all times we have all of the footage for for everybody for that decade i was thinking more like their consciousness but i think maybe yours is more (laughs) (laughs) well i mean this is this is just the dark ages right because you know we don't have any they're not gonna have any records of, of that from this time just whatever whatever people bothered to write down as if you can trust that yeah, yeah, uh, and but but what you write down will be so much more precious. Like every single tweet will be cherished. Well, not not every single tweet, <laughs> <laughs> because we didn't have total history from before twenty forty or whatever. Are we ready for another topic? I think we are. Yes. Uh, so this is a write-in. Uh, Quill asks, "My name is Name, and I'm here to say say the rap cliche that can be dated back to a nineteen forties Chiquita banana commercial." I'm Chiquita Banana and I've come to say Bananas have to ripen in a certain way And when they're flecked with brown and have a golden hue Bananas taste the best and are the best for you You can put them in a salad I mean, it's a it's a pretty informative commercial as far as commercials go. Uh-huh. It's un, unrelated, but I remember there was a... I don't remember which podcast this was, but the commercials used to be a lot longer. I remember the Snap, Crackle, Pop commercial for Rice Krispies. Like each each of the elves had their own verse that they sing about their onopoetic, onomatopoetic sound. Yeah. Do you think it's just that they a commercial break was just one commercial? I, did, I don't know. I wasn't alive for any of this. I'm just glad I didn't I never had to endure, you know, two minute long commercials against my will. I'm I am I'm slightly skeptical of the invention of this being the the entire invention point of my name is blank and I'm here to say mostly because I'm trying to picture like Grandmaster Flash watching the Chiquita Banana commercial <laughs> in the 40s and being like someday I'm going to grow up and be a rapper and then like <laughs> I'm going to bite that one line. Well, that's it. That's exactly how commercials work, though. You watch them against your will and they're earworms. I still remember commercials from the 90s, like com- complete lyrics to about a dozen. And then it just comes in through your work, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. That's that, true. Did you guys listen to the um, – there was a, a podcast. I can't remember which podcast it was, but it was talking about the uh, – trying to trace the origin of the Who Let the Dogs Out chorus. That was 99% invisible. Uh, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. They traced it back to um, a football cheer. Like, they, they first they like talked about like, well, this artist did it before this artist for like 10 different bands that all like thought they invented it. I think they just at that point just gave up as opposed to like this being definitive. They traced it back to like a football chant. I mean, it's a traditional really. Right. You know, that makes it's, sense. It's, yeah. It's a timeless question. Right, it's like it's like trying to find the origin of the cool S. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking like the epic of Gilgamesh, but yeah, that works too. <laughs> they're very similar. You know, we were just talking about the Dark Ages, but that's that's kind of how we date things is the earliest we can find. Like we don't know how old a lot of old works are. We just know what the oldest copy of it that still exists is. Yep. I had a very sort of surreal moment 
which is actually kind of relates right to 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 advertisement and ancient works uh which is like there's this one commercial i i won't say what the commercial is for because i don't want to get anyone in trouble i don't think i will uh but it's like the the commercial it would be shown all the time when i was really young and i always i sort of had in the back of my mind that sounded a bit like this traditional jewish song called dayenu which you sing like at passover i think it's passover and i was like huh that sounds a bit like like i remember like having that slight realization like sounds a bit like that and then way later in university i had a professor who was like he wrote for commercials that was kind of like his thing he ran a production company that wrote for commercials and he starts telling us the story about how one time he accidentally wrote that song Dayenu into a commercial and it was that commercial wow. that he had written and I was like it was like my entire world is imploding but it's also like kind of best case scenario I suppose because you're really not going to get copyright infringed for something that's been in existence like before the bible or something you could totally rip off oh Danny boy and no one's going to come after you <laughs> but yeah that, I, as a sometimes musician it is intensely frustrating to me how hard it is sometimes to tell the difference between writing a song and remembering a song. Right, right. Remember hearing about the theory that um, the Beatles song yesterday, Paul McCartney thought of it in his sleep or like woke up with it and he was sure he ripped it off from somewhere and right. he kept playing it for everyone and everyone's like, no man, I don't, you've never heard this, you made it up. But he possibly did. <laughs> in that there's similarities between it and uh, Ray Charles's Georgia on my mind. Oh, wow. Ah, interesting. Yeah, if there's anything I've learned about uh, plagiarism and music, it's that most people in the music community are like very chill with, like I feel like, mo like most of the, for example, like the lawsuits that have happened in the last five to ten years, if you talk to people who whose job it is to write commercially, they're all like, no, that's total uh, poppycock, as they say. Like that similarities in music are something that are just like super inevitable and everywhere in a very crazy way that seems kind of odd. Yeah, I agree. I, and, and my guess is that... Um most of those lawsuits are not filed by musicians, but they're filed by like the estates of musicians. I mean, the the other thing is that these lawsuits are decided by juries of non-musicians. Right. And it's really easy to find people whose job it is to find connections between music if they are willing to expound on that as a witness. Yep. Yeah, and it's like once you start looking for similarities in music, I, I tend to shy away from like the idea that of stealing. I mean, okay, obviously you can rip direct things like melodies or something, but you listen to certain genres. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever listened to uh, Minimalism. It's like a, from, I don't know, the, the 60s through 80s maybe, famously from um, what like Steve Reich and uh, Philip Glass. And you listen to all that stuff and like, oh my God, this is insane and very pioneering and super interesting. And then you listen to like traditional Balinese gamelan music from like thousands of years ago and it's literally like that. Yeah. And it's not to say like, oh, they ripped it off. It's just super interesting how direct sometimes those influences are. And then that's just like how music changes and the cool thing about music, I think. 
Yeah, that stuff's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think it's true for a lot of things. You know, most of Shakespeare's stories were ripped off from other stories that are much less famous now. Right. If you if you look at a Midsummer's Night Dream, there's a acting troupe that does the play Pyramus and Thisbe, which is an older, I think, Greek story. And you're like, wait a minute, this is Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he he outs himself. <laughs> Shakespeare is directly quoting the thing he is also ripping off in another play. <laughs> Amazing. Are we ready for another topic? Ooh, I think so. Yep. Uh, Jonah, your topic is jamming at full leisure speed. Ah, uh, okay. Yes. So, I did ludum, ludum dare, ludum dare, depending, that's a big split in the community, how to pronounce it, but, um, which is a 48 hour, uh, game development competition. I, I did it, uh, this past time and generally for game jams, I, I am like doing it like a game jam, game jam where you kind of, you know, the second the prompt is out, you start and then you spend like 48 hours getting little sleep and working constantly and this time i was kind of tired i think i had done something that week i don't know i started at like 11 30 uh in the afternoon and like worked for a couple of hours and then the same the next day and i actually produced a game that uh, i was really really happy with so i was kind of curious about this idea of taking a format that's sort of built to be intense and using it in like this super super chill I think I like watched a movie. I don't think I've ever before like ended a game jam night by being like, oh, I'm going to watch a movie and hang out, you know, at like 8 p.m. or something. So, you know, when you, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example of this trope, but when you see uh, like monks doing martial arts or some people with like, or like, you know, acrobats or someone with like extreme control of their bodies. It sounds like that, but for time management. Like, I'm not sure <laughs> that I could have something finished that I was happy with without that, like, mad dash at the end. <laughs> well, it's not time management so much as scope management, right? Yeah, the whole bit about what what do you want to do and can you can you make it so that you have enough time to do it without rushing? Yeah. Jonah, how many game jams have you done? Um, I, th- I probably four or five, maybe six. I don't know. Something okay. Like interesting. It, it seems like being able to make a game in like four hours and be satisfied with it. I would guess that requires a fair amount of practice doing jams specifically because that's how you learn to scope on the fly like that. Yeah. Yeah. I do remember, I think my, my brother's line on jams, which was always interesting to me because he was, I think one of my first jams was with him and he was like, yeah, okay, if you want to make a huge game, like first get a, the bouncing ball to work. Like that's, yeah. <laughs> that should be your goal. Right. And I learned that the hard way, certainly through, especially I think jams with teams or larger teams, it can be super hard. Like I remember having a jam one time where we had a scrum master on the team and that's just like, <laughs> that's a nightmare. Because then on, on Sunday, of course, it's like, you're basically doing like an entire company's worth of git merges and everything just sort of collapses into a giant steaming heap yeah that's a i can't imagine doing that that's like the the biggest jam game i ever made was um with a team with three programmers on it oh my gosh (laughs) 
the way we did that was just like, you do this part of the code, you do this part of the code, you do this part of the code. And we weren't able to put the th- our three parts together until the very end of the last day. And it was just luck that it turned that it turned out to be a decent game in the end because we were each working on like basically three uh separate mini games ha huh, interesting putting separate mini games together into one game hmm interesting idea jim <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're talking about um desert hike um which i don't know if you've played oh, that oh yeah i remember that <laughs> but the three parts were um one part one person was working on um the visual representation of all the, of the people like going through the desert and one person was working on uh the text encounters with the stat changes and then i was working on the uh stealth the action stealth encounters that would happen occasionally and then of course we also had like uh, a writer writing encounters uh and like all of these things were scoped to like well this is about a weekend worth of work and we just all did our part and just didn't get a chance to to meet in the middle until the very end. And it was just blind luck that it turned out to be something decent. I mean, this, this scoping is really relevant for me right now. What I've recently taken to doing is just in the course of doing my work, recording how long it really takes to do anything. I've got a sheet over here that's meticulously, I just check off every half hour to just say like, how much time am I spending on writing website pages? How much time am I spending on making homework assignments? Can I guess how long that's going to take? Turns out, no. (laughs) I had had some really uh, wrong ideas about how, I mean, despite having done this for years, I apparently had never bought to check that it was taking me 30 hours instead of 10 hours to do something. But yeah, that's a, it's a really like know thyself discipline process. It sounds like to scope and understand what you can do in a small time frame without cramming yourself. Yeah. I also do this, the same thing with 20 minute time intervals, which I find super helpful. And it is totally, absolutely crazy how long and short 20 minutes can feel depending on what you're doing. Like sometimes 20 minutes goes by and you've like rewritten an entire part of something and like, it's like you're, there must've been at least an hour and it's like, okay, no, that was 20 minutes. Or the other hand, it can go by so quickly. It just like has nothing to do with, uh, time (laughs) yeah that's why this is hard that's why you gotta you gotta record this you have to put in a you have to make a uh make a testimony for yourself in the future so i know for example that for my fall class i am not writing a new website (laughs) (laughs) i did also do last summer uh like six weeks of game a week so that was kind of an interesting crossover where they're like kind of jams but you have a week. I weirdly oftentimes find it easier to make a game in a weekend than a week because it's like you have a very clear cut sort of timeline in a weekend. Like you start on Friday, go through Saturday and then Sunday is like finishing up. So I feel like it's very kind of set out. Yeah. Yeah. The, the week long game jams were always frustrating to me because like usually I was like fitting a jam in a weekend is one thing because like a weekend is a very as you said, a very delineated piece of time. But like, if you're trying to build something 
in the 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 free time you have during a week that's much more uh hard to at least with at least the way my brain works it's harder to motivate myself to do like an hour of work a night versus 20 hours of work in a weekend yeah exactly yeah it's really hard to switch back and forth you get that momentum going and also if you if you stay up until 2 4 in the morning that's when the real quote unquote creativity happens <laughs> yeah um i'm going to plug also if you'd like to see the game it's on jsenzel.itch.io so j s e n z e l.itch.io and it's called old friends just in case just out of curiosity if people want to see the result of the leisurely thing because also i think part of this is the way that i make games is a bit less technical intensive these days than maybe other people sure yeah just making a making a zzt map (laughs) not quite but yeah more um sort of text and explorative focused than super uh systemic or mechanical right and uh, if you want to see my game jam game that developed into a full mini game, you can play Frog Fractions too. <laughs> it's in yep. there somewhere. Good luck. I feel I've been I've been trumped. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of them you have to pay money to do. Yeah. Uh, you ready for another topic? Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alexander, your topic is cartography and meteorology on weirdly shaped fantasy worlds. So. Map projections are a topic you can get weirdly deep on, I've noticed. Yeah. Um, It's a problem where there's no fully satisfying solution. So, therefore, there's a hundred partially satisfying solutions about how to put a globe on a flat plane. Yeah. If you want to practice doing this at home, try peeling an orange and then make it as flat as possible. Yeah. I mean, but it's interesting in that you could you can... You can make categories based on their properties. Like you, you can have it so that every north is always up, or you can have it so that uh, if you zoom in on any location, it won't be weirdly skewed or stretched. Or you can make it so everything has equal area, or you can make it so that everything is contiguous, but you can't do all of those. So you figure out ways of doing some of them, or doing like a compromise between them. There's one really wild map that's designed to show you the way to point towards Mecca if you are if if you do if you want to do the Muslim facing towards Mecca thing. Yeah, yeah. But wow. I I got into this because um, there was a while back, like a long while back, I was in a friend's D and D campaign, and we 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 jumped into this weird extraplanal world that was the inside of a donut shape. Uh-huh. where you know gravity points outward and the sun kind of moves around the uh, center of the donuts and day and night happens when it's behind the center spoke and of course i immediately wonder like well what's the what would the cold and hot regions be what would be the how long would day and night last how would you make a map of the world like this well, doesn't, isn't isn't a do- donut doesn't that have the secret advantage that you can just use a flat sheet of paper like a like a sheet of a4 and there's your map of the donut um no cuz I'm not sure how you're envisioning this. You some Well, first of all, you roll it up into a tube. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah you can do that, but you're you're still are stretching some things. That's fair. Okay. This is like what 3D modelers do 
all the time. Maybe we should hire them to make a map projection, like the UV unwrapped right. map projection. So you could do that, but I, I wanted to make a conformal map. Um, it's like if you go to uh, if you go to Google Earth or Google Maps and you look zoom out, they use a Mercator projection because that's conformal, which means that if you zoom in anywhere, north is always up and west is like east west is never stretched twice as long as north south or there's no other kind of weird skewing happening that you get in the equal area projections do they use a different projection if you zoom in i mean i don't know i I think that's a very technical answer because when you zoom into a mercator it acts like just a flat picture of things okay i don't know how they factor in the 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 particularities of that but it's basically the same idea so i i decided like what if i wanted to make a conformal map for the very uh the very esoteric cartographers of this land because i'm sure that they've been studying this forever and i'm sure they have all kinds of ideas on how to put map progressions together right it, it's interesting because you you can take fantasy worlds where something small works subtly differently and realize that you know there's generations of people who have studied here all their life they have probably studied the ins and outs of this completely and have their own wild systems about how things work i mean the other one i really got sucked into was tides i was inspired by a previous topic lords where you you talked about what if earth's gravity doubled and what would the moon do <laughs> and it wouldn't be completely destructive but the moon would get very close and it would you would have some insane tides and, and i got really deep into that and turns out the moon's orbit is very very complicated it it has a <laughs> lot of yeah it it shifts around a lot uh, in different ways and that all shows up on tide charts so you can have a lot of fun making speculative charts and maps of things. If you say, what if there's two moons or what if the Earth's orbit does something else? Or what if what if you're inside a donut? I think the whole concept of this like also is a very interesting way to look at like how to craft or how you could craft a fantasy world because the I think the initial reaction is to be like, well, what would be the most sensible map to have? But then you look at how history has played out with mapping in here in the real world and it's like oh it's not the most sensible map it's like the one of the i i maybe this is uh i don't know how true this is but the whole thing with the like the european projection map being the dominant map for a long time and it's like it doesn't maybe have to do with uh what's most accurate or what's correctly projecting it's like who is making the map and what do, how do they feel that the world should be portrayed yeah exactly i mean it's a it's a combination of the two if you go to like if you go to japan and you look at their maps it'll be the same projection but it'll be centered around the pacific because that's what's relevant um, and there's a lot of other projections that are land biased you want to keep the land masses together you don't care much about whether the oceans get cut into pieces yeah yeah i um i remember in elementary school when i was growing up in the 80s there were a lot of maps that like placed North America in the dead center of the map and just sliced Eurasia in half of, across the, the left and right edges. Yeah. But there's so many ways to have mathematical fun like this. Like I, I, I post, pasted a uh, couple pictures in the chat. I was wondering what if you had a, a coin world that was just two circles, but you wanted to make a map that would show 
what is the straight line path to reach somewhere on the back of the coin from a random place on the front? I was wondering what these pictures were. Yeah, me too. So you're looking at conformal remappings of the head of a penny. These are all made so that if you zoom in any location enough, it will be well proportioned, but it's made so the rim of the penny is into a straight line. And I unwittingly made mercilessly merciless caricatures of poor Mr. Lincoln here. I like the second one. He looks very aspirational. Like Yeah, he looks very wise and uh benevolent on that one. These would make incredible memes, I think. This is very good. This is these are going in the show notes for sure. You versus the person she tells you not to worry about versus the person you have to assure her not to be worried about. <laughs> <laughs> Versus the person your mom tells you not to worry about. <laughs> versus the person your mom tells you to worry about. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what, what, what are we missing? Because we, we've been on this world for, uh, you know, we've been only on this world. And all of our calendar systems, all of our map systems, all of our charts, and, uh, you know, even our numbering systems is all based on what we have here. It's, it's fun to think about. Even if we travel to other worlds, they'd probably still be spheres. Yeah, yeah, that's boring. Yeah, I agreed. Yeah, maybe there's somewhere in some other dimension where it's like everything is a pyramid or something like that. All right, we have time for one more topic. All right. Uh, My topic is uh, the Doctor Who theme was created before widely available synthesizers. And I found out about this a while ago, but was reminded of it recently. And I was just, it's, it's a fascinating example of like how... Like if you're playing with modern tools and you do um, what feels like interesting work, people probably did that same interesting work with tools a hundred times more primitive than you a hundred years ago. So, the Doctor Who theme was composed by uh, Ron Granier um, and was performed by Delia Derbyshire. And the performance is the interesting thing because the composition is just writing a bunch of notes, which people have done before. But the, uh, the performance in this case involved taking individual notes like plucked string notes or um, uh, notes recorded from, um, from oscillators on individual slices of tape and then like splicing all those individual notes together to make a performance. Okay. And this is what we're talking about, like actually taking magnetic tape uh, and physically taping it together. I was just, just contextually also for music concrete. So I can feel like my music degree was worth the money is that this is a, like a, a movement at the time as well, where they're cutting up tape into like microscopic, like millimeter sized strips and rearranging hmm. them to create like textures and sounds. So this is like pre synthesizers, pre audio manipulation. It's like literally with a razor blade and like hmm. tape, like like some sort of plasticized tape onto glue. And like this is how you're like re creating stuff. Yeah. Now question does this theme have a theremin in it? Uh, no, that's the uh, those are the oscillators. Okay, but it sounds like it, like it, it. It's got that sort of sound to it, and I, I think 
later iterations of the theme, I still don't think they used theremins, but I think they leaned into that tonality even more. It'd be funny if they switched to theremin because I think that's an even older piece of tech. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good point. They could have used that instead. I, I remember reading about how people try like the Beach Boys tried to use a theremin on good vibrations and it was just so inoperable at the time that it delayed so the recording. Play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a very interesting um synth as well, the Ons Martino. I'm not sure how to pronounce this, but I'm I'm oh, yeah. looking it up from nineteen twenty eight. Which is like a pr- another like weird proto physical synth non synth electronic thing, and I think it's similar to the theremin. Yeah, as I recall, that one is um, it's got a very similar tonality to the theremin, but it has a musical keyboard instead of demanding that you move your hand <laughs> in physical space with no visual referent, like a chump, right? To to form notes. I, it is pretty amazing what people what people tried to do when all they needed to do was wait a hundred years and it would have been so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about the Beatles, but a lot of a, a lot of what make the Beatles like a part of music history besides just a band you listen to is how much they, I mean they were still using tapes, but they were doing wild stuff with the tapes. Yeah, they, they were, were using, uh, they were using a four track, which is. Yeah. Like a, a a ridiculously for modern standards, the like a four track is ridiculously uh, primitive. Even like you know your nephew in his bedroom with a laptop can do better than that. Yep. Yeah, it's it's funny because now there's an entire revival of four track people that are like super obsessed with playing and recording on four tracks, and it's very expensive to find and maintain them. The last ep- the last episode of Topic Lords I was in when we talked about using. Uh, constraint as a point of inspiration or just a field to work within. I feel like it's like, well, maybe we should go back to that sound. Maybe being forced to work with this primitive tech can force me to make something interesting out of it. Well, yeah, but you could also just like only use four channels on your laptop instead of... Yeah, but the the temptation's there, Jim. (laughs) That's right. You will never... I'm kind of very curious about in general technology that dumbs down current technology and makes it more like old. Like there's a great uh, phone app called Gudak, which is like a fake Kodak camera that you, takes a roll of film like it would on a disposable camera. You can't preview any of your photos. You just take them. And then it actually does take like three days to develop or something. Wow. It seems very silly and gimmicky at first, but they it's should, like... They should invent the Polaroid equivalent of that. Well, <laughs> I mean, now I want to go back and program games in the TI-83. Yeah. You should just get like, realistically, you just get Pico-8 and have fun with that. Oh my yeah. gosh, yeah. I feel like Pico-8 is is uh, all the joy of constraints and none of the actual headache of making stuff on real old school eight, like 8-bit hardware. Yeah, that, that's really the the magic of that piece of software is that they found that balance between feeling like it makes you feel like you're working like what, what you felt like when you were working with the hardware back in the 80s. But but in actuality, it's way nicer and and is actually usable to a modern audience. I should look into this. 
I mean, I was also I was also thinking of it in the same vein of tech that was boldly before its time. I'm going to just paste this in. Um, this is a picture of a machine they would use to predict tides. It's a series <laughs> of of loops, and every one of these has a wow. different period. Because, you know, the, there's the, the moon, the, the periods in which the moons shift around and it's how its orbit works is there's a whole bunch of different cycles. People had a vested interest in figuring out the tides. You know, there was, there was important work to be done, but they uh, were inventing the math they needed and the physics and the mechanics to do it as they were trying to put this together. <laughs> right. That's very ex- – oh, the, this is the third tide predicting machine. They've been working on this for a while. Uh, this is totally, this is kind of off topic, but I just feel always the need to mention when we mention the Doctor Who theme song for people that are curious to look up the, uh, just look up the KLF on Wikipedia. This is like an entire episode of a podcast or something, but the KLF the, the, is fascinating. The craziness. Yeah, yeah. I always feel like, because I went so long without ever having heard of it and then all of a sudden like getting all the history I feel like it's some something that I I feel obligated to always introduce or mention to people because it's such a crazy existence. This yeah. is a band. It's a band, but That's it's a good also question. <laughs> it's also like a, an art movement. They stopped being a band when they took all the money they earned from being a band and l- literally burned it. I'm, I scroll to the bottom and I say I see I see see also anti-art <laughs> yeah yeah for the one sentence um connection to why it has to do with doctor who the theme song they they made they kind of like joke made a almost a parody of pop music by just taking this uh the hey song like da 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 hey like this song and putting the words doctor who the tardis to that yeah. theme music, yep. you can look it up. And it became like a smash hit. This was kind of like, I guess, the start of their real career. But that alone is like, that's just like the first of many super fun just like what it seems like it's totally fake pop singles that they made and they followed that up with like a book on how to get uh, a single to number one <laughs> in that book is is a is a fantastic read as well it's a little it's definitely out of date now i don't think you could follow those rules and and get a, a hit single in the uk now but it was an interesting uh, picture of how the depiction of how the uh, the music industry worked in the UK at the time. And I think they're relatively active to some extent as well. I know that like within the last 10 years, they had some huge gathering art event thing that was supposedly quite interesting. So, they're still around doing stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, that's uh, that's all the time we have here for Topic Lords. Jonah, if this is the thing that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I have Twitter at Jonah Senzel, J-O-N-A-H-S-E-N-Z-E-L, or again, my website is works.rip, and you can see stuff there. 
And Alexander, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? You know, pretty much the easiest way to find me uh, for people listening is probably through Time Lords. Um, <laughs> I, I am on Time Lords. I am I am occasionally on the Discord. Um, I don't really have much of a commercial presence. And by, by Time Lords, you mean Topic Lords. Topic Lords. Yes. Excuse me. It's okay. We're t- we were just talking about Doctor Who, so I understand the confusion. <laughs> yeah, come... Pay money to the Patreon so you can be on the Discord and talk to Alexander. Yep, and uh, it, I would be I would be excited if somehow there was someone interested in resources for teaching math through the internet and doing uh, getting on the kind of stuff I'm doing. If you're a math professor, I'll just invite you to the Discord. You don't need to pay money. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right, thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.